Good day to you all and herzlich willkommen to the Botschtuber podcast. This podcast brings together some of the most influential historians, politicians, and more from across the United States and former lands of the Habsburg Empire to discuss the incredible people and events that connect them. My name is Luke Magante, and for today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Dominique Ryle, a professor at the University of Miami, expert in Southern European history, and current grantee of the Butchtuber Institute. For years, Dr. Ryle has studied the rich histories of European countries in and around the Adriatic coast, many of which were once part of the Habsburg Empire. In 2022, she released her second book, The Fiume Crisis, Life in the Wake of the Habsburg Empire, centering on the troubled multinational city of Fiume in the years following World War I. Known today as the Croatian port city of Rijeka, Fiume was often re- has often been referenced in history books as a key location for the rise of Italian fascism. This notion stems from the turbulent years of 1918 to 1921, when the small but quickly growing city was thrust into the fray of great power politics following a descent into sovereignty limbo. Without further ado, welcome Dr. Ryle. How are you? How's the weather in Miami? The weather in Miami is very consistently always hot, so <laughs> it's one of our most boring questions, but it always makes us feel like we know we have some control. So you were originally, you were born in Los Angeles, yes. but you've spent time living in Southern Europe and you're a university professor now in Miami. Yes. Out of all those locations, which has the nicest weather? Uh, well, definitely not here. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, I, I love the Mediterranean. So I'll just say any of the Mediterranean places and California likes to pretend it's Mediterranean too. So I like it where we have some seasons, but I mm. don't like, I don't have to risk frostbite. So how did you start getting into Southern Europe in general? How do you go from being an, a West coaster of the United States to an expert in Southern European history? Um, unfortunately, I am a cliche. I, I rebelled against my parents uh, in a very non-rebellious way. My mother loved France and my father loved Germany. I was such mm. a Europhile. I, I'd grown up a large chunk of my life in Germany as a, as a kid that when I went to college, I just knew I wanted to go abroad, but I knew I didn't want to go anywhere that my parents went. So I signed up for Italian, and uh, I went on a year abroad in Bologna um, my junior year, and it was during the Yugoslav civil wars, mm. and it, you know, it, I, I hope everybody out there knows what a wonderful experience it is to live in a new world that you don't know very much about, and also learn about the world in those different lenses, and I think that's when I got hooked, um, and when I went to graduate school, I thought I would be studying Italy and and I, I really like learning languages and so I started studying um, Serbo-Croatian my first year and uh, to, you know just fell in love with learning about all these different worlds I knew so little about and then I took courses with this very very famous historian Istvan Dejak who you know, he's a snake charmer. He'll always, he, <laughs> I have yet to meet a person who's not been in a classroom with him who hasn't changed their field in order mm-hmm. to study Central Europe. So I kind of, I kind of followed the tides and that's what's brought me here. Do you feel as if because of all the time you've spent in those areas now, one country or the region in general feels like a second home to you? Um, I definitely don't think a country does. Uh, if anything, I think a region does. So that, that was a really great way to ask the question. But yes, I feel 
every day things change. It's not as if there's any stability anywhere anymore, <laughs> especially not in Southern Europe. But yes, I do know how to go grocery shopping. And, <laughs> and it's reassuring to know how to, to go grocery shopping. So, That's yeah. step one. When I, when, I, when I was first in Germany, one of the things that threw me off the most was when I first went to the Edeka grocery store. Yeah. <laughs> and the old lady behind me got really, really mad because it took me about five minutes to do my groceries. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have I didn't have bags ready or anything. <laughs> don't don't screw around with German <laughs> with German shoppers. <laughs> so, was it early on that Fiume began to spark your interest, or was it something that you kind of got into as you were planning out a research project? No, this this book is really different than my first book. My first book was on uh, mostly around Dalmatia and Trieste and Venice, and it was a book of love. It was I learned about this whole new world that had been, you know, somehow erased from the history, and I, I worked so hard to put it back together. And I got very lucky. I had a wonderful editor at Stanford University Press who believed in the project. However, they they made it very clear to me that they were not going to be giving me many images because they said, this is a great book, but it's never going to make any money. No one's going to mm -hmm. read this. And it made me so sad <laughs> because mm -hmm. I was like, well, that's why we need pictures. <laughs> because no one, uh, and they said, if you want, if you want pictures, you need to write books about things people care about. And I, the day I signed my uh, contract, I just made a list of things people care about that piss me off. And uh, <laughs> Danuncio, uh, the guy we're going to be talking about, I'm sure very soon, uh, is one of these charismatic figures in the history of 20th century Europe who who kind of, I, I kind of think he brainwashed uh, not just his contemporaries, but also us, the readers, mm -hmm. um, into wanting to learn more about him. And Fiume is part of that story. And so that's how I came up with a project. It was a story that never made much sense to me, but it wasn't one that I really cared that much about either. It, it was about... Why is this still here? It, it didn't make sense to me why this history has remained so stable. Um, usually historians always like to undo things and make something new. And for some reason, this history has, has kind of had a lot of legs for something mm -hmm. that didn't make much sense. So that's how it was born. It was born actually out of, I want pictures. <laughs> but in the end, uh, obviously, I've been capable of writing a simple book. And so then this book became something very different. It's, uh, it's a topic that, as you discuss multiple times throughout the book, it's very well known among political scientists, historians, and different academics, but it's maybe a bit less known uh, even to modern Italians or people from the region or Americans today mm -hmm. uh, that at the time played a really big role in shaping the future of Fiume. Mm -hmm. uh, could you kind of explain how the crisis came to be and what Fiume's origins were? Yeah, really quickly, though, Italians do know about D'Annunzio. So in Italy today, if you go to school there as a kid, you have to memorize poems by him and you hear all the stories about him and you have heard of the word Fiume. You don't know anything about the town, but you have heard the word and you have heard the story about D'Annunzio. It's 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 kind of like Teddy Roosevelt and, you know, and the, it, it, it's a story. 
that that Italians do know. They 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 don't know anything about the town, but they do know about Dendenzu and Fiume. But um, how it happened is uh, this is a town that was the eighth largest continental port in Europe at the beginning of World War One. And it was in the Habsburg Empire in the Hungarian half. And at the end of World War One, the empire dissolved pretty quickly. No one really knew what was going to happen. And this this port was kind of left up for grabs. Uh, it, it wasn't an estate. It was a multilingual, multi-ethnic town. And it had functioned kind of like a Hong Kong of the Habsburg Empire. It had, they had created an administrative unit for it so that it wasn't related to, uh, administratively with any of its hinterland. Uh, so a, a town like that and a port like that in a time of economic crisis after World War I, making new states out of empires, it was a goodie that no one could decide who to give it to. And it became this huge bone of contention at the at the Paris Peace Treaties. Uh, the the Italian state wanted it because a large pop, a large chunk of the population identified as Italian, and many many activists in the town wanted the town to be linked to Italy. Um, however, many people also didn't want it linked to Italy from the town and in uh, and in international circles. Um, and so it became this kind of double war, uh, diplomatic war, around the idea of identity. Uh, what is the identity of the town and what nation should it be attached to? And then around the idea of uh, um, economics and politics and, uh, and global systems, where people like Woodrow Wilson, who really didn't know very much about uh, the Balkans or or the Mediterranean really did know that he didn't like the idea of Italy having a monopoly over the Adriatic Sea, and so the idea of giving this very important port to Italy as as well as uh, many of the other ports was something Wilson didn't want, and so he very famously at the Paris Peace Conferences said, "Not over my dead body is Italy getting this town," and it turned into this crazy two-year-long stalemate uh, between the United States, Italy, what will be Yugoslavia, and then this crazy poet shows up. <laughs> I can't even explain it all in one, but... It's, it's <laughs> an incredible story. Every time you think that something's going to resolve, another figure pops up. Yeah, you, you start off and you tell this very like uh, diplomatic history around the war, and then there's new states, and then there's there's state interests and then there's nations and then you have to get to this like womanizing uh, drug addict poet guy with his followers <laughs> jumping into the story um, and that is why this story a has been very hard to tell uh, in a in a in a reasoned manner and b why it's been a story people like to tell in a reasoned manner because um, diplomatic history and economic history can get pretty boring. It also can get pretty hard to decide what's the most important story. How do you not talk about the making of Poland or what's going to happen to the Ottoman Empire or what's going to happen to all the German colonies in Africa or what's going to happen to Germany? Uh, There's so many big stories, diplomatic and economic stories to tell at the Paris Peace Conference uh, if you look at any of these books around 1919, I and I've spent years of my life reading this stuff. I get lost because it's hard to decide what's the most important thing. 
enter Fiume, obviously not the most important place, but important at the time. And then there's this crazy guy, <laughs> the poet guy, which really differentiates the story from the others. Uh, so I'm sure you're going to ask me about the poet guy. So we'll <laughs> yeah. thing, but just We've... to say, it's, a, it's an important, it's a history that pops up in different stories. It pops up in diplomatic history, uh, 1919 Paris, pops up in the idea of nation and Italy and what will be fascism and making a strong state. And it pops up in this idea of the springtime of the peoples and the Balkans and Yugoslavia uh, uh, before we even get to the weird part of the story. It It's it's incredible. And you've, you've brought up Gabriele D'Annunzio a few times now. <laughs> and I, for those that aren't aware of who he is, I'm sure he sounds like quite the individual at the moment. But uh, could you kind of explain how this city that was a part of the Hung Hungarian section of the Habsburg Empire uh, and then following World War One was thrust into this kind of no man's land where they had to govern themselves while mm -hmm. the great powers decided what would happen to them. Mm -hmm. During that process, how can a famous poet celebrity from Italy mm -hmm. basically commandeer power and control of the city's administration? Well, I mean... <sighs> This is why people love history is nothing, nothing is necessarily follows the rules. And that is part of what this makes this story so fascinating is that there is there's rules that we have about how history works and how states work and how economies work. And then there's a town of 50,000 people that decides it's going to determine the future of state building in Europe. That doesn't make sense. That's not how it's supposed to go. A city should not be telling the United States how to organize the Paris peace treaties. Uh, that's weird. Another weird thing that happens is there is a stalemate, as I mentioned before, between the United States, Italy, and, Yugos and what is going to become Yugoslavia. And it, it's kind of at an impasse and, and things are boiling up. People are getting frustrated. The troops, there's an inter-allied commission, kind of like after World War II in Vienna and Berlin, where they, you know, these images from the third man uh, of, of the Russian and American and British and French troops. After World War I, that's actually happening in Fiume too. There are no Russian troops, obviously the Bolshevik Revolution, but there are British, American, French, Italian troops in this town to try and keep the town up for grabs so that no one can come in and take it and say, this isn't a fait accompli, Fiume is gonna be mine. Well, you know what? You have to have troops willing to fight. <laughs> And what happens is D'Annunzio, he was a member, he had volunteered for the Italian military um, and kind of been become this G.I. Joe for the Italian war effort, decided, you know what, let's just go take it. And so without any government approval or, or, or explicit support, he and about 200 followers, mostly veterans, uh, or, or current soldiers, uh, just walked to the town and said, either shoot us or leave. And the inter-allied troops left. <laughs> so a guy with 200 other guys basically kicked out British, American, French, and Italian troops and took over the town because no one was willing to go to war just a year after the end of World War I uh, over this town. So we, 
this turned into an, a, a almost two-year-long occupation of the city by this poet uh, until finally the Italian state decided to bomb the town to force the poet out so that international diplomats could decide the future of the town instead of the poet. Um, the year prior to D'Annunzio taking over, which I believe is 1919, mm -hmm. that is when the the city of Fiume first found itself uh, in its precarious situation. And at the time, the administration was taken over by kind of a ragtag group of individuals that had proceeded from the local government prior to the breakup. Why did D'Annunzio, who was fighting kind of under the banner of Italian nationalism, feel the need to usurp the Italian National Council, who was serving as the government at the time? Mm -hmm. Initially, so when he gets there in September 1919, he doesn't take over the government. He just take he just kicks out the inter-allied uh, troops and takes over their role of, of inter-allied troops. So he's Okay. He, he kind of takes over just the military role of the city, and the city keeps on running itself. As time goes on and things get tougher, I mean, he thought, you show up, you show the world that, that these stuffed shirts in Paris don't, don't actually have any bite to their bark, uh, and then everyone just gives Fiume to Italy, and we all move on. <laughs> Boom, bada, bing. Uh, and that doesn't happen. They decide to, uh, international diplomats decide to not get bullied by him. And so it turns into this waiting game that um, means that this town is outside of international systems for almost two years, which you can imagine creates a situation where there's there's no trade, there's no money, There's uh, this is a town, not a country, there's no food. And Danlesio is stuck in a situation where, while at the beginning he was very popular, his arrival in Fiume, it just was otherworldly. And with every week he stayed, every every week he became more worldly, more, hey, mm. guy, you're supposed to be, you know, be our savior. This is a nightmare. And so after a year, he 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 gets so frustrated with Fumians, with with the locals of the town for, for not being more supportive of his grand initiative, that he kicks out the government and takes over and creates his own kind of regency, calling it uh, a regency in the name of the Kingdom of Italy, that he's just keeping it until Italy will claim it. And he, he names himself the Duce. If anyone knows anything about Italian fascism, they probably recognize that word, the like what Mussolini called himself, um, the Duce of Fiume, and he creates uh, an authoritarian government, which never really actually is put into practice. It's it's more on paper than in reality that the town government actually does continue to run most of everything. But it's it's more a, uh, about the time. Danunzio did not go to Fiume to take over Fiume. He he went to Fiume for Fiume to be the first of things to be taken over by Italy to to grow Italy's empire. And when he gets stuck there, he's he's stuck becoming a governor, and he he's not really interested in government. And so it, it's just you know the wear and tear of day after day, week after week, month after month that pushes him into an administrative role he never wanted, and pushes this city government out of of ruling. And one of the interesting things is, despite the heavy correlation with Italian nationalism and. Mm -hmm. 
that kind of underscoring of all the actions that they were taking and the, the news coming out of the city directly at the time, there were a lot of Croatian, Serbian, Hungarian, and other individuals that supported uh, the annexation of Fiume to Italy. Why, why is that? I mean, there, there, there's so many ways to answer that question. First of all, it's a boom town, right? So it, it grew by 60% in 30 years. People who moved to this town did not move there because of their longstanding cultural ties to the town. People who moved there moved there because they wanted it to make money. That Either they were looking for a job because they were unemployed or because they, they see this growing entrepot, commercial, global capitalist center and they want in on the action. So the people that were attracted to this town are an amalgamation of peoples from Central Europe, the Balkans, and the Mediterranean. And what you get is this, this crazy situation where you have about a little less than 50% of the population that is identified as, as mother tongue Italian. And then you have about uh, over 10% of the population that's identified as mother tongue Hungarian. And then you have about 5% of the population that's identified as uh, mother tongue German and 5% that's identified as mother tongue Slovene and about, depending on how you count and who you count, of, of less than 20% that's uh, considered mother tongue Serbo-Croatian. And then you've got all these Czechs and Yiddish speakers and <laughs> you just then you just, then it gets out of control. And, and the reason why it's so mixed up is because it's a port town that's a, that's that's a new poor town. So the idea that after the war, all of a sudden everybody's national is kind of crazy because the reason why people are there is because it's global. Mm. And what people want is the reason why they came to the town to continue being what the town is, a town of industry, a town of opportunity, a town of trade. Uh, and Italy seems on the go. I mean, they want to build an empire and they want to control ports and they want, you know, so let's go. <laughs> so, you know, there are people who want Italy to take over Fiume because of na nationalism, because of ethnicity and language use. There are people who don't want it to take over because of nationalism and ethnicity and language use. And then there are these other people that are really thinking about their rents or their bank accounts or their jobs or their future. It's hard to decide or understand what people are thinking at any moment. But it is true that that town was not a nationalist town before World War One, even though it became the kind of figurehead of post-war nationalism afterwards. And do, does this tie in to during the during the book you talk about the term fumanesimo mm -hmm. or like fumanization? Mm -hmm. I think it would be in English. How exactly is that term used, and mm -hmm. is it is it connected to this kind of multinational? Mm -hmm. Hodgepodge. The word that you're talking about is a word that's used in Italian, and it's actually more about the Denuncio stuff. So mm. it's in, in Italian historiography and actually just in Italian school books or in Italian lore. There's even comic books about this. Denuncio's arrival in the town is told as kind of Woodstock. I know this sounds crazy, but uh, he and his followers, the poet and his his ragtag bunch of artists and bohemians and people on the edge, arrive and come and make a world outside the world. And uh, there, there are little moments in the story of D'Annunzio and his followers in the town that have 
pirates and have parties and have there's one group that calls itself yoga and there's nudists. There's all these weird things happening in this time period when Don Lucio there is there. And this word, fumesimo, is used to describe this kind of um, post-war feeling of a new beginning that happens in the town with Don Lucio. That word is never used to describe people from the town. Mm. <laughs> it's used to describe Italians who kind of have a getaway, uh, get away from the drabness of economic depression, war weariness, death, you know, all, all things constitutional and strikes. There's, a, there's two years of strikes going on in Italy at this time. It's like, um, in, in, <laughs> I'm from New Jersey and... There's the, the people that live on the beach all year round. Right. And then the, they refer to the people that only come to the beach during the summer as bennies. Yeah. And in Miami, we call them snowbirds, the people that come in the winter. <laughs> yeah. So so your bennies or my snowbirds are the fumesimi. And then the people from the town are are living something much less fun. <laughs> that, was, that was one of the most interesting things that you talked about, I thought, was you, you kind of go into these life stories, yeah. little little chunks for various individuals that lived in Fiume before and after yeah. World War I. Mm -hmm. uh, were, were there any that stood out to you specifically? I, I, there's so many. I, you know, I this is a book that I, like so many historians I'm sure you've talked to, uh, I, I thought I was going to write this book, Fast and Furious. And, and I started off, you know, on a real fast tra trajectory and then things happened. And uh, I would think about the stories uh, that really meant something to me while I was slowing down because of family things and administrative stuff and whatever. Because they kept me, um, they kept me invested in the book. And I remember this one night, my stepfather had just got had a stroke. He had actually ended up dying, and I had to drive all night long from the archive, Danunzio's archive in Italy, to Rome in order to get the first flight back to California. And in order to stay awake, I was telling myself out loud in the car stories that some of them are in the book mm. that reminded me about why this book is about life. Mm. And one of the first one that came to my mind that you just that when you asked that question is actually not in the book right now. Um, it's, it's a woman, it's school teacher. She was from a Fiume and she worked in the city schools and she spoke Italian, but her mother tongue, her mother language was, uh, was Serbo Croatian. And she also spoke Hungarian. Uh, with all the changes in government, she lost her her classroom in the middle of the city center and was sent to some like school in the outskirts, which she didn't like. And then with another change in, in whoever was in charge of the school board, she got sent even further out. And by the the, the, the story I'm thinking about happens actually after Danunzio gets kicked out and Mussolini takes over the town in 1922. And she writes a letter to the school board begging to reassign her to the city of the center. And she says, if you guys don't let me come back to my town, I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to cut my vein, she says in Italian. And she writes this whole letter, this like suicide threat letter about give me my city center school district in a pencil that is uh, white, red and green, the colors of Italy. So mm. 
in her writing, it, you know, when you're a kid, you had those pencils that had the multicolors and when you write, you know, a rainbow would come up. Yep. She, it's in such a nationalist pencil. It's a, it's a nationalist pencil. Nationalist. Yeah, and she's convinced that if she just shows how, what a good Italian she is, they will let her with her, with her weird Italian pencil. And then she says at the end, yay, fascism. <laughs> But anyways, these stories about these people who go through so many twists and turns from the end of the war until until the end of the denuncio period and are just trying to survive and and retell their stories and rearrange their lives in so many different ways in order to lose as little as possible, just like this teacher getting moved from one school to the next, uh, she'll just finally say long live fascism <laughs> just so she, she can come back home. That's th- those are the stories throughout the book in one way or the other that, that made me, made me write it. Yeah. As, as often is the case in history, there's kind of what is put out as being the most important in any given historical situation. Mm-hmm. And then there's always the, the lived experiences of the people there, which are always in a bit more of a gray area, yeah. which is seemingly the case for Fiume as well in many regards. <laughs> yeah. So there were all of these individuals that did choose to stay following the war. And mm-hmm. in some cases, it seems like they benefited through the, the mess that was converting all the different currencies and regulating that system. Some people were trying to update their citizenship and pertinency status. Mm-hmm. And there were also teachers, like you said. I, I know at one point there was a teacher who chose to not have her students sing uh, right. nationalist songs, I believe, yeah. because they were uh, demeaning to her Slavic background. Mm -hmm. What kinds of changes did Fumin's experience over these three years? And kind of what are the discrepancies between what was being reported at the time and what people were actually experiencing? Mm, That's such a good question. And obviously there's no answer for it. The the real answer is there is no one answer. And that's what my book is trying to show is that we have such a stable telling of this time period about what the, the normal history of, of, of Europe after World War I goes a little bit like this. Before World War I, there are empires and there are nation states. There are liberal uh, organized countries. There are socialist uh, movements. And everything is coming to a head. And then with four years of devastating war, violence, a kind of a virus of violence and intolerance is let loose that that kind of disallows the the overlappings of difference the same way as was happening before World War One. And especially in East Central Europe that was mostly very multi-ethnic and multilingual and multi-religious, the cosmopolitanism of the pre-war is is rendered almost impossible with this new vision of states need to be organized around nations and the only people you can trust are the people of your nation. What my book tries to show is that that is not the case. <laughs> yes, there is enormous violence in many parts of Europe after World War I. Um, yes, a lot of this violence is also nationally informed. Yes, a lot of this violence is a, is a hangover from what happened with World War I. But just there are just as many stories that are not about violence. And there are just as many stories about people who just want to go back 
who just want to keep on living the lives they had before. And those stories have been erased. Those stories don't make sense anymore. They actually seem almost like some kind of like goody goody two shoe children's tale. And I find that there's something very dangerous about the idea that people people not wanting to kill each other is naive. <laughs> or people worried about feeding their children is naive. So what 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 my history is and all these moments, these chapters, one is about money, one is about law, one is about citizenship, one is about education and propaganda and uh, names and and flags all of the all of the book is about showing all these different strategies people use in order to make it by to make it through and maybe to come up ahead as you mentioned but we have been trained to not see it and we've been trained to see something that that makes hitler make sense uh, and, and, you know, maybe, maybe it's not a great idea to try and write history to make Hitler make sense, <laughs> especially almost 20 years before. So that's, that's what the book shows. The book is showing how people wake up in the morning, their world has changed. But that doesn't mean they've changed. And they, they start changing with the, with the circumstances. They start trying to figure out how to change the circumstances to best fit their needs. And it's very unclear what the final outcome will be. And in fact, Fiume's history is has been turned into a myth more than a history precisely because we wanted the story to be easy. And one of the most, I guess, surprising things from that story is that this city that considered itself Italian, if nothing else, it was bombed by Italy <laughs> two years after uh, one of the deadliest wars. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. How, how can that even be the case? Well, you know, if you if there's an international peace settlement with all the most powerful countries in the world deciding that they're going to make the map of the world to make a peace to end all peace, and then you you have some weird poet guy with his followers deciding, ah, screw that. At a certain point, it's a game of chicken, and that's what happened. The, the guys in Paris had decided that they were going to determine what was going to happen to Fiume, and the town under Danuncio decided to not pay attention. And eventually, guess what? <laughs> the, the international global diplomacy showed the town who's in charge. So although it sounds insane that Italy bombed the town of Fiume to force it to stop calling itself Italian, if you flip it around, it actually is like, well, if you don't eat your if you don't eat your Brussels sprouts, you're going to get sent to your room. It, it is a moment where those bombs that and there aren't that many. I mean, honestly, the, 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 the attack on Fiume was done as carefully as possible to kill as few as people as possible and create as little damage as possible. Mm -hmm. No one wanted that war. What it was to show that there are still teeth in international diplomacy even though no one wanted to show them. It, you know, it's a little sad that they, they were so careful with Fiume and so uncareful with what was happening in the ex-Ottoman lands or what was happening in the colonial lands of Africa. I mean, when, one can really start asking some other questions about why so much diplomatic care is being put into Fiume and so little diplomatic care was being put into uh, the Middle East, but that's a different story. And a lot of that stemmed originally from conversations between Woodrow Wilson and the Italian delegation at the uh, conference. Yes. What what made Fiume different 
for Wilson? Why why did he choose to kind of pick a fight, if you will? And why is that fight Fiume? Wilson really didn't respect the Italian government that much, nor he, you know, he had his own prejudices around uh, Italian cultural mores. He is an American. Uh, he was in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> it is the early 20th century. So uh, there have been historians who I think quite pr- provocatively and uh, justly argue that he he had some uh, some chauvinism going into this. But also, Italy was a much weaker country than France or Great Britain. And so uh, making claims for imperial expansion is one thing if you're France or Great Britain in the in the Middle East or in Asia or in Africa. And making those same claims in your Italy is very different. And so in many ways, Fiume happens precisely because the imperial power most interested in that project is a weak one and one that Wilson feels uh, he can easily push aside um, and and perhaps look uh, more righteous because of it. There are many hotspot towns throughout Europe and throughout the world that uh, that are just papered over. That doesn't happen with Fiume because 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 of the because of the diplomatic situation closer to the beginning you you mentioned how a lot can be gleaned for modern politics current events from the story of fume yes. and what was happening at the time yes. you i'm pretty sure you compare denuncio to the ability to understand current figures right. like donald trump um a lot of different people that run on the back of more populist yes. uh, platforms yes. What do you think are the most important things to be understood today that come from the story of Fiume? Um, This sounds... I I really hope that the listeners can give me just a moment. If a story is too good to be true, it probably isn't true. (laughs) If something is so entertaining that you can't believe it's news, maybe it's not. What, what D'Annunzio did is he used his incredible genius. He was an amazing writer. He was, he was a thea- theatrical man. Uh, he had a genius for, for seeing that you can do things even though people don't do them. And he got people would watch and listen. It was amazing. You felt so alive because none of it was supposed to happen. But that doesn't mean any of it was actually happening, that it was the story and it was the world. It was the world that will entertain you. It was not the world that was why there was an issue in the first place. And so I, I, I guess what my book is, is, is trying to show that there is so much life that is fascinating and complicated and heartwarming and also you know, anxiety producing. All the emotions you can want are in life itself. You do not need uh, that guy manipulating us and, and using yellow journalism to make the world an easy uh, yes or no. And that is what the Fiume crisis was at the moment, is that it was a manipulation of the media by a, a fascinating, brilliant guy and his followers that erased what was actually happening on the ground. Uh, and on the ground was, you know, something that many people I'm sure didn't want to want to live themselves, but it, it was filled with life and it had enormous consequences, not just for the people there. It's a sad story, but it, it seems like a really important one. 
Yeah, I wrote a little thing for um, for this blog for Christmas, uh, I think it was last year or two years ago with the pandemic, it's hard to remember, about, you know, when we, when we hear about this crazy story, we want to understand why would someone follow Denuncia? Why would you... Why, if you're 18 years old, would you run away from home and and leave your girlfriend and and go to this world you've never been to, Fiume, who's ever even heard of that place, and follow this poet? Why would you do that? And that's what historians, those are the kind of questions historians have been asking. They've been asking, how did he do it? Why did people follow? Isn't this incredible? And the more we keep on trying to understand the extraordinary, we stop seeing the extraordinary ordinary and mm-hmm. the 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 50,000 people in that town and if you count the 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 the, the hinterlands the 100,000 people uh the sailors the the children the the wives the the businessmen the the beggars the the fortune tellers the prostitutes the whatevers uh the, all of these crazy stories disappear and we get that guy and the 17-year-old following him. And I don't know, it feels pretty flat and boring to me. Uh, At any point in your research, did you find yourself rooting for one outcome or another, even though you knew what would ultimately befall the city? Were you in, in some part of you hoping, oh, maybe the Nuncio and Fiume will be able to figure it out and be their own city? You know, that's such a great question. No one's asked me that. And here's the answer. I don't know what the right answer would have been. <laughs> mm. it, this, this was a town that was an imperial town in the true sense of the word that now needed to be put in a nation state because that's what was on offer. Was it going to be in Italy or was it going to be in what was going to be Yugoslavia? And in the end, at the end of this time period of the book, they decide we can't decide either. And they say, we'll just make it an independent country. Well, that didn't work either. A 50,000 person independent country in the, in the middle between two warring siblings is not going to work. So while I was writing the book, it was really easy to not root for any side because it didn't look like any side would win. Mm-hmm. In my first book, I was definitely rooting for certain sides. And in this book, I was more like, there's a reason this couldn't be solved. <laughs> I, you know, it's still, there's, there's, unfortunately, things just got worse. So I know, I, I know what I wish hadn't happened, but, uh, but I didn't have, I didn't have this vision of, oh, why would they just listen to this guy? He knows the answer. And uh, a big issue with that was who was the sovereign? Like, where did the sovereignty lie? Right. Uh, they were no longer part of the Hungarian portion. And it seems like they carried over some of their laws from Hungary system. But at the same time, they were trying to adopt the Italian legal code. Right. Do you see Fiume between 1918 and 21? Do you think it acted more as a continuation of this state within a layered sovereignty system of the Habsburg Empire? Hmm. Or do you think it began to act more so with, I think you called it locally centered imperialism? Um, so, you know, let's imagine it in a different way. If you're, if you're in a company or, or in some kind of institution and you, you're, you lose your sovereignty, you're put in receivership, right? So you're, you're now going to be organized. You're, you're not something new yet, but you're not going to be, you're not organized the way you were. So Fiume is kind of put in this kind of uh, on pause. They don't have a new government. They don't have a new king. They don't have a new president. They don't have a new anything. So they self-declare themselves 
independent and they make their city council their uh, provisional government and they just decide and they say they make a they make an issue that everything from before is the same until we say it's different <laughs> so so they don't say all the laws from before are will be our laws they just say everything is the same until until you've been uh, informed of otherwise and then they kind of uh, pick and choose and add and subtract here and there to make things go better or to try and hedge their bets in one way or the other. But the time period is a transitional one, and they are organizing themselves precisely in that way. They don't think this is going to last forever. They think that they are just kind of consolidating what they were to face what they are going to be and to to, to try and, again, be as strong or lose as little as possible in the transition period. So if, if any of your listeners have been through transition, institutional transition, I'm sure that they can imagine how unpleasant this felt. And, and you know, it's almost like you're, you're a boat and you're sinking and you're trying to bail out water <laughs> and figure out where you can patch things up. It, it is pretty beautiful to watch what they keep. So what, even though this is a time of incredible nationalism, they are not creating any kind of really chauvinistic evil rules, like all people who aren't Italian are kicked out or, you mm-hmm. know, you, everybody has to speak Italian. They, they create this kind of facade of the nation and, and allow uh, diversity to continue under the facade. And I find that very interesting. Yeah. And I mean, if, if there was any theme with what we've talked about so far today, it seems to be that there's a lot more nuance, mm-hmm. as always, than is uh, is ever able to be understood mm-hmm. in these stories. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess, is there, um, I'm trying to think about how to phrase it, but with the story of Fiume and how it's gone from this whole period of a few years to uh, what happened before and after, and now it is this uh, one of the larger cities in modern-day Croatia. Uh, it's gone through all these changes. Mm-hmm. And w- what is modern Rijeka, as it's called in Croatian? Uh, it, as you say in the book, Rijeka means river in Croatian, Fiume means river in Italian. And there's no big river. <laughs> yeah, and it's a small river. <laughs> <laughs> the river is so small that its name is Little River. <laughs> the nuance never ends. <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, uh, what is it like today? It's a really uh, mind-boggling place. So it it after after this time period of the book, it, it was an independent city-state, um, depending on how you want to count it, for about four years. And then when Mussolini, after Mussolini took over the Italian state a couple of years later, he um, annexed uh, the town. So it was forcibly taken by by the Italian state with the support of local fascists in Fiume at the time. From 1924 until 1944, more or less, it was a functioning part of the Italian fascist empire. And it was no longer a facade of nationalism under a, a lived reality of, of diversity management. It was a fascist nationalist government that was about Italianizing and uh, and expelling those who should not be part of the Italian nation. 
when uh, the Italian fascist government lost and then the Nazis came and then when the Nazis lost, the uh, Yugoslav socialist government took over the town and there was a wild spree of, of vendetta, a revenge against mm -hmm. uh, people who had, uh, who had been leading this Italian fascist world. There was also a fear of vendetta. And so there was an enormous expulsion, voluntary or involuntary. There's a lot of argument about this. Uh, almost half of the town left um, and went to Italy. This then became a showcase for Tito's Yugoslavia of showing that Yugoslavia can make Rijeka, the new town, whole, whole again and modern. And so an enormous amount of money was pumped into the town to turn it back into this vibrant port city of, of Tito's new Yugoslav socialist state. And this, the multinationalism of Yugoslavia was one of the strong currents of this remaking of Rijeka. Um, people from all over Yugoslavia were uh, encouraged to move to Rijeka, and so it actually got another wave of new cultures and diversities and language practices with this new Yugoslavia. And in the 1950s and 1960s, the city had been bombed uh, at the end of World War II. It was a huge rebuilding program, a huge reinvestment in, 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 in ships and shipbuilding and infrastructure. By the 1970s, Lieka was like the, the happening place. There's a underground music scene. <laughs> it was doing pretty well. Not the same Woodstock, no, but still. No, it was, uh, and then it then it got Detroit. It, and then, you know, in the 80s, uh, Yugoslavia is not doing great. Shipping is not doing great. <laughs> These infrastructures are getting old. And with the fall of the wall, the economic disaster that happens to Yugoslavia happens big time to Rijeka as well. When the Yugoslav civil wars happen, Rijeka is not really actually very in that war. And, and it is considered not um, by many nationalist parties a kind of traitor uh, because it is not as it wasn't directly in the war the way many parts of uh, Croatia were and it it just wasn't one of the havens of Croatian nationalist movement although there, there there's, there's a strong nationalist movement there as well today there's two visions of, of Rijeka uh, Rijeka as a European city um, I, I, as a city built on diversity, as a city built on a crossroads of Europe and the Mediterranean. Um, it, it was a city of culture for the EU, uh, obviously with its bad luck right when the pandemic started. And so there's, there's, a, there's a cultural movement in the town that is very outspoken about being open-minded open and open-thinking and, and, and that this is what Rijeka has always been about. And then there's, there's another version of this, which is very nationalist, anti-Italian, um, that is that that is about, Rijeka was always at war with this other thing, Fiume, and the real city is Rijeka. And it's very unclear to me what's going to happen in the future. And again, I, you know, because of the pandemic, and also I've moved on to another project, I'm not in the mm -hmm. town as much as I was, 
Um, so I, I might, I, what I'm saying, I'm sure every day is changing and the pandemic has changed things uh, enormously. But it's if, if people get a chance to go visit, it is definitely a town wh- which is just as confusing as my book. <laughs> and, hopefully, and hopefully just as fun. <laughs> There's um and I'm it looks beautiful as well yeah, for anyone yeah. listening that's thinking about going to the Adriatic coast. It's definitely not a bad decision. No, it's like Berlin. A friend of mine who's I, I grew up in Berlin as a kid, and one of my best friends, she's from Berlin. She's like, I love it. It reminds me of Berlin in the eighties, uh, except mm. with islands and the beautiful sunsets over the water and excellent fish. So with that uh, kind of dual mindset that you've observed today, where it's on one hand, kind of an upheaval from the period of Italian fascism and when the people were kind of forced to accept that narrative, there's the upheaval against that, but there's also this sense of openness and finding a better way forward. Mm -hmm. Do you think that any of those sentiments still come from 1918 to 21? Mm -hmm. Or do you think that so much has already happened that the, the story of Fumians at the time isn't as relevant to the people of Rijeka today? Mm, that's so interesting. You know, I never know how to answer these questions. And so I always change my answers. So I'm going to give this answer. Maybe the next time we talk, I'll change it again. But I think <laughs> that human beings um, are, they, they get inspiration from what they think is possible. And so thinking about the past and thinking about uh, Fiume Rijeka as a multicultural, multi-ethnic space, filled with peoples of different interests and different backgrounds and religious beliefs and everything, living and struggling together, um, makes you feel like, hey, maybe this is a town where that's possible. And so it starts becoming a, a forerunner for the future. And, and then when you're in a, in a mood of thinking, gosh, we, you know, all of this, this cacophony of interests and languages and cultures, uh, is why things don't work, then you can think of the, the moments in the history of this town where it's the opposite. And that's when the trains ran on time. And that's when, so right now I feel like the city is trying to decide which past is the more usable one for the future. Mm. Um, but I do think in the architecture of the city, in the structure of the city, you feel that this is a, a world of many cultures. It, it, there is an, a, an archaeological a whiff in, in, in a very modern sense where you feel it's Hungarian, where you feel it's Croatian, where you feel it's Italian, where you feel it's German, where you feel uh, it's Jewish, uh, where you feel it's Roman. Uh, you know, there, there's still some Roman ruins there. Mm. And, and so, you know, it, there, there, there is enough there that you cannot forget that it's never was a simple place. And there's a lot of room to be a complicated one. That's a, uh beautiful way to summarize it i think uh in the end um so i just want to say thank you so much for agreeing to do the podcast Uh, for those listening if you would like to learn more about this crazy city of fiume (laughs) at the time and what it was like to be there then you can get dr ryle's book the fiume crisis life in the wake of the Habsburg empire Uh, is there anything else you wanted to say before we go about fiume i know that you're also working on another project right now for the botchtuber institute for your third book I'm just happy that Bud Sieber was interested in talking about Fiume. Um, I hope your listeners uh, think about the, your your project and your mission in in as broad a ways as including my work in your program is, which is that 
Fiume's story is a Central European story. It is a Habsburg story. It is, even though you're going to get excellent Branzino and wonderful white wine, when you go visit Rijeka and you sit and look at the sunset over the harbor, which is very different than going to Salzburg, um, it is still connected. And I really love your guys' uh, organization because I think that it's just so useful to put all of these different uh, research projects and questions and cultural monuments together to to really see them as a whole. So I, I'm really grateful that you invited me to come talk uh, about this project, especially because it is the book studio. Of course, I loved I loved the book. Oh. I'm forward to talking more in the future. Okay, great. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, keep an eye out for new content across our various social media platforms. The Butchdieber Institute for Austrian American Studies promotes an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including lands of the former Habsburg Empire, by awarding grants and fellowships, organizing lectures and conferences, and publishing the Journal of Austrian American History. We engage with a broader public audience through digital programming, including videos, podcasts, and blog posts. Auf Wiedersehen, and see you next time.